Part three, section two, chapter seventeen, part b of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larry Wilson. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lowell. Chapter 17, Part B. Examples of Parasites. Sporozoa. One group of protozoa, the class Sporozoa, is composed exclusively of parasites. It is possible, therefore, that their general similarity, shown in the absence of locomotor organs and in their mode of reproduction by means of spores, may be due to convergent characteristics resulting from their parasitic mode of life. In other words, instead of a natural group of related organisms, we may be dealing with a heterogeneous assemblage derived from several more or less remote ancestral stocks. The sporozoa are all internal parasites, some of which inhabit the digestive tract of their host, others the salome or body cavity, others the cells, and yet others find lodgment in the very nuclei of the cells themselves. Finally, some are blood inhabitants. In many cases, there may be modifications of these several modes of life or combinations of them. Of such is the malaria organism, the genus Plasmodium, several species of which give rise to the disease known as malaria in the human being. The three undoubted species are Plasmodium, producing tertian fever in which there is an attack over 48 hours, Plasmodium falciparum, giving rise to the pernicious autumnal or malignant malaria characterized by daily or more or less constant fever, and P. malaria, producing quatrain fever, which gives rise to paroxysms every 72 hours. The significance of these attacks is that they coincide with the periods of schizogenous, to split reproduction of the parasites, during which it migrates to new blood corpuscles. At such times there is a decided anemia and poisoning which give rise to fever and other bad conditions due to the impoverishment of the blood. Even death may ensue. The parasite therefore reproduces by the formation of spores, but ultimately sex elements, male and female, may be developed. Actual sexual reproduction does not, however, occur in the human host. If the patient is then bitten by an Anopheles mosquito, the latter's digestive fluids destroy all the malaria organisms contained in the extracted blood except such as are in this sexual stage. These then pair, and the fertile cell bores into the walls of the mosquito's gut, where each gives rise to many spores, which are finally liberated into the body cavity, whence they are carried by the blood to the salivary glands, and there come to rest. Upon biting another patient, the mosquito injects a tiny portion of saliva into the wound, hence the sting, and with the saliva comes the malaria germ. As these organisms are all of the same brood, their subsequent periods of reproduction coincide, so that a constantly increasing number of spores is liberated at stated intervals, depending upon the species, until ultimately the numbers are incredibly large and the effects upon the patient proportionately severe. Plasmodium is therefore a permanent, obligate parasite, but as its ancestors were lowly forms, there is probably no very marked degeneracy as a result of its parasitic adaptation. 
Worms. Among the roundworms, Nemethelminthes, there is a very terrible human parasite with a relatively simple life history. This is Trachina spiralis, a somewhat faculative type as it has been recorded from the rat, dog, cat, pig, and man. Trachina lives insisted in the voluntary or skeletal muscles of its host in a state of quiescence. Each worm is coiled in a characteristic spiral within the limits of a single muscle fiber, and is surrounded by a small lemon-shaped cyst. If the host is eaten by another, the imperfectly cooked pig, for instance, by man, the acid of the gastric juice dissolves the cysts and liberates the worms. These are of separate sexes and immature, but they soon grow up, pair, and the females give birth to a thousand offspring each. These bore through the walls of the stomach and are carried by the bloodstream to adjacent voluntary muscles such as the diaphragm. Here the creatures enter and pass between the muscle fibers for a certain distance and finally pierce the membrane surrounding some one fiber. Enter, coil, secrete the surrounding cyst, and the life cycle is complete. An ounce of infected pork has been estimated to contain 80,000 worms, of which perhaps half are females, and if each produces 1,000 young, the surprising total of 40 million worms may be derived from a single ounce. The Trukina population of a diseased man has been calculated to equal 100 million, the population of the United States in 1915. After insistment is accomplished, the patient, if he has survived, recovers, but grievous symptoms diagnostic of the disease trichinosis are manifest during the period of parasitic activity, and in a certain percentage of cases, death ensues. Trichina is a permanent parasite, never having a free-living stage. It does not, however, show marked degeneracy, except that it is capable of withstanding long periods of quiescence, ten years at least, how much longer is unknown. Alternate hosts of different species are unnecessary, provided cannibalism exists. Among the flatworms, platyhelminthes, there are numerous parasites, of which one of the most interesting, from the standpoint of its life history, is the liver fluke Distomen hepaticum, which inhabits the liver and bile ducts of the sheep, deer, and certain other grazing animals. This is a rather large worm, as such forms go, at least an inch in length, flattened, leaf-like, and provided with suckers for attachment and the getting of food. The worms are hermaphrodite, and the reproductive organs, both male and female, occupy a large portion of the animal's interior economy. They are thus highly prolific, and their parasitical degeneracy is manifest in that they are self-fertilizing. The eggs thus produced pass down the bile ducts and through the intestine to the outer world, where each hatches into a minute embryo, ciliated without and provided with eyes. The eggs soon die if the ground is dry, but if they fall upon moist ground, they may survive for several weeks, and if into a pond, the embryos soon emerge in search of a new host. The new host is a pond snail, or even a helix will do, any of which the distomen enters by way of the respiratory aperture. Established within the respiratory organ of the snail, the embryo loses eye spots and cilia and changes into a sporocyst, within which develop a number of bodies known as radii, which are asexually produced larvae, 
of a second sort, provided this time with digestive organs. Each radia usually gives rise to more radiae, and these in turn to the third larval form known as circariae, which also have a digestive system, suckers, the rudiments of other organs as well, and a well-developed locomotor tail, so that the creature resembles superficially a minute tadpole. The securiae are no longer content with a snail for a host, but pass out of it, being distributed by its wanderings, leave the water, climb up a blade of grass, lose the tail, form over themselves a flattened, circular, limy cyst, and lie in wait for the sheep. The latter eat the grass, cyst and all. The cyst dissolves, and the circaria is liberated. It now passes up the bile duct from the intestine to the liver, and grows up directly into a fluke. This very roundabout process is the only way whereby the parasite may be perpetuated within the sheep. Several interesting biological principles are here illustrated. Generations of asexually produced forms for rapid multiplication. The precocious production of offspring by immature young, pedogenesis. The development of sensory and locomotive organs where the creature is free-living and their absence and the substitution of adhesive suckers during parasitic existence, and finally, as a mark of degeneracy, hermaphroditism and self-impregnation, the latter being avoided by nature in that it apparently defeats the original purpose of sex. The tapeworms of the genus Tania are curious ribbon-like forms consisting of a head-like organ or scolex, provided with suckers and sometimes with hooks for attachment. Beyond the scolex are a number of transverse constrictions which divide the animal into a great many sections, or proglottids, each of which is a sexually complete hermaphroditic unit. There is no digestive system, for, as has been said, the creature feeds by absorbing the already digested food in the alimentary canal of its host. Other organs, nervous and excretory, are present, but in common with other internal parasites, the organs of procreation dominate those of every other system. No locomotor or sense organs are present, but the creature can make feeble, worm-like movements. At about the 200th segment beyond the scolex, where they are produced by a process of transverse constriction, strobilization, the male organs begin to appear, and further back toward the hinder end of the body, the female organs become mature in segments which were originally male. Pairing is effected, perhaps with the anterior proglottids of the same worm, and the other organs then become reduced, owing to the great development of the brood chamber or uterus. The first completed eggs are found in the 400th to 500th proglottis, and from this point backward they rapidly increase until a great number are contained in the much-branched uterus. The ripe proglottids are detached and pass out of the host to the ground, where for a time they move by contraction. Within the eggs, in the meantime, the embryos have become rounded bodies, each armed with six hooks, hexacanth embryos. If the proglottis or the eggs should now be taken into the alimentary canal of a pig, the second host, the hooked embryos become free and bore their way by means of the hooks until they reach the voluntary muscles, where they come to rest. Here they increase greatly in size and develop into the proscolex, containing a large cavity filled with a watery fluid. On the wall of the proscolex a hollow ingrowth is formed, 
on the inner surface of which suckers and hooks characteristic of the head or scolex of the adult develop then the hollow ingrowth turns right side out so that these organs come to lie on the outer surface thus the bladder worm or cystocircus is formed having a bladder-like expansion to which is attached a structure comparable to the head and neck of a mature worm if the flesh of the pig is now eaten by man without being adequately cooked or salted the worm is liberated the bladder abandoned the head attached to the intestinal wall and a new tapeworm developed except for the short period which the mature proglottid spend before being devoured by the swine the parasite is entirely internal and in consequence shows marked adaptations for that sort of life and none whatever for life in the open its powers of multiplication can well be imagined when one multiplies the thousand or so eggs from a single proglottis by the number of the latter perhaps eight hundred fifty in a complete worm with a possibility of many more as the posterior ones are lost crustacea the arthropods also embrace a host of forms which are parasitic crustaceans arachnids and insects and in the last there are parasitic forms in as many as five orders out of thirteen among crustacea some curious instances may be cited as in agasilus which is parasitic upon the gills of the bass it is recognizable as a copepod crustacean but parasitic adaptation shows in the modification of the antennae into hooks for adhesion reduction of legs loss of eyes and very large egg sacs another example is lernea in which as in saculina all trace of segmentation is gone and the feet are reduced to the merest vestiges its maxillae are adapted for piercing the skin of the host and sucking its blood the egg sacs are very large lasteria another copepod is more degraded than lernie adhering between the skin and flesh of a fish by means of its swollen head the rest of the body being free crondacanthus has nothing to suggest a copepod except the characteristic egg capsules the female is parasitic upon the gills of certain fishes and is curiously lobed these lobes may however be recognized as antennules hooked antennae which serve as organs of attachment mandibles and two pair of legs the male is less degenerate but is permanently attached to the female so that she is parasitic upon the fish and he upon her a much less degenerate parasite is that infesting the carp argulus the carp louse while having special sucker-like organs for adhesion which are modified limbs it nevertheless crawls freely over its host sacalinia the most degenerate parasitic crustacean has already been discussed insects of insects which subsist wholly or in part upon other organisms there are hundreds of species some remarkably degraded others showing but little alteration from the organization of their non-parasitic allies as one would expect these latter are free-living as adults and only parasitic in their adolescent condition usually parasitism on the part of the adults implies the loss of wings as in the bird lice true lice scale insects fleas sheep ticks and the like in one rather rare group the creatures live upon bees and wasps as hosts during the larva and pupa state and in the female during the adult condition as well the male however develops wings as an adult 
otherwise as these are solitary parasites but one to a host mating could hardly be effected in no case among parasitic insects are such complex life histories known as among the worms although some of them notably the lice and ticks have evidently had a long parasitic career as their adaptation is extreme mollusca among other invertebrates such as echinoderms and mollusks parasitism is rare as the creatures have met the demands of the struggle for existence in other ways which have now proved fully as effective one interesting instance of parasitism is that of the larva of the fresh-water clams anodonta and unto normally pelecypod mollusks have a ciliated miroplectonic larva but in the fresh-water forms they become parasitic in the way to be described fertilization is effected in the outer chambers of the female clam's gill and the developing young remain in this brood pouch until it is distended with the tiny creatures held together by the entangling of the threads of a byssus which are secreted by each larva this mass is shortly expelled from the mother and lies on the bottom of the stream until it comes in contact with some passing fish to which the young clams attach themselves by means of the hooked shell valves unto larvae usually attached to the gills and andanta to the skin or fins here they become insisted by an overgrowth of the skin of the host and are nourished by its juices they are thus true ectoparasites for a period of about ten weeks at the end of which they have metamorphed sufficiently to assume the normal free life of the clam this parasitism evidently has for its major purpose the retention of the species in the rivers for were the larvae ordinary plankton like those of their salt-water relatives the species could not maintain themselves in their flowing habitat but would be swept out to sea beyond the possibility of return relative scarcity of microorganisms for food may be a secondary cause but for the maintenance of habitat this parasitism is not only adequate but also justifiable vertebrates the vertebrates include no true parasites among their numbers though the degraded hagfishes are on the border line between predatory and parasitic forms there are however many instances of commensalism in some of which the mutual advantage may be quite unequal summary wiseman thus summarized the problem of parasitism the most convincing proof of the organism's power of adaptation is to be found in the fact that the possibility of living parasitically within other animals is taken advantage of in the fullest manner and by the most diverse groups and that their bodies exhibit the most marvelous and far-reaching adaptations to the special conditions prevailing within the bodies of other animals we have already referred to the high degree reached by these adaptive changes how the parasite may depart entirely from the type of its family or order so that its relationship is difficult to recognize if we consider the number of obstacles that have to be overcome in existence within other animals and how difficult and how much a matter of chance it must be even to reach such a place as for instance the intestine the liver the lungs or even the brain or blood of other animals and when on the other hand we know how exactly things are now regulated for every parasitic species so that its existence is secured 
notwithstanding its dependent upon chance, we must undoubtedly form a high estimate of the plasticity of the forms of life and their adaptability. And this impression will only be strengthened when we remember that the majority of internal parasites do not pass directly from one host to another, but do so only through their descendants, and that these descendants too must undergo the most far-reaching and often unexpected adaptations in relation to their distribution, their penetration into a new host, and their migrations and change of form within it, if the existence of the species is to be secured. End of chapter 17, part b.